This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from Dragon Meat in its shiny new facility, the Ibis Hotel Earl's Court in London. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode includes... Tabletop and adventure gaming. How to write good. History. Movies. Occultism. And, and of course, course food. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. So, uh, as is our want uh, during these uh, live episodes, it's mostly a Q&A, but uh, another feature of the live episodes, uh, the Nerd Trope cards, uh, created by Calev Tate. Uh, give him a round of applause. For, <laughs> for coming up with this uh, now staple live segment in which uh, I draw one nerd card, and then one trope card, and then Ken, and uh, you have not met me before, I have, sir. I have never met you before. <laughs> uh, I am a shill. And so now we will uh, get Ken's understanding of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. And Alien Artifact. Alien Artifact. Okay. Genghis Khan. The thing that is interesting about Genghis Khan is that he is very much sui generis. Obviously there are gifted Mongol chieftains, there are gifted steppe chieftains back and forth. Tamerlane probably the most successful after Genghis. 
Tamerlane claimed to be direct descent of Genghis, once again implying there's something specific in his blood. But no other steppe tribe from the Guti of 3000 BC to the Manchus of 1644 accomplished a fraction of what Genghis Khan did. And Genghis is not born into the leadership of the Mongol tribes. He rises basically after nearly being killed a number of times, implying some native distrust of Genghis Khan by the locals, some knowledge that he was not of their sort, uh, to create an empire that spanned literally the length and breadth of Eurasia. He created an empire that overthrew 10 separate civilizations, 10 mighty surrounding powers, destroyed, knocked over like nine pins. Again, all right, the Manchus conquer China. Genghis Khan conquers China, Karakatai, Samarkand, Karakoram, Persia, mostly. Uh, a big ch uh, chunk of, uh, of Russia, which at that time was several different Khanates, creating an empire that then goes on in the model that he establishes to conquer the rest of Russia, much of Poland, Austria, almost to Venice, almost to Vienna, takes out uh, the entire Middle East down to Egypt, takes out eventually all of India under Baybars, another claimed descendant of Genghis Khan. Under Tamerlane, it takes out all of Turkey, almost takes out um, uh, Europe, goes back over through Central Asia. Genghis's successor, Kublai, finishes the job in China. Once more, we are left with a historical anomaly. The horse uh, and bow, not new. The recurved bow goes back 2,000 years before Genghis. Obviously, domestication of the horse goes back farther than that. Nothing Genghis brings is new or different except Genghis. Genghis, of course, famously believed that his power descended upon him from Tengri, the god of the heaven, that he was the Tengri, the Genghis Khan. His name, of course, is um, uh, originally Temujin. Genghis means basically sort of the, the, the chosen Khan, that he is picked out by Tengri. So we know that Genghis has something, and whether the alien artifact is in fact Genghis, whether he is a cyborg with expert systems for uh, Mongol politics, step warfare, organization, the ability to switch programming on a dime from destroying all cities to creating a heavily urbanized empire. It's as though an algorithm is set when pyramid of skulls equals 50 then, something like that. <laughs> or whether it is simply the horsetail standard, the nine horsetails flapping around, perhaps indicating a sort of multi-dimensional superstring array that is merely being depicted in later descriptions or in later art as nine horsetails because they can't comprehend what they're seeing trailing from behind Genghis Khan. So, what we have then is something that falls into Central Asia, circa 1200 AD, and emerges as through or in the hands of Genghis Khan. One is, of course, immediately reminded of the Chintamani, the black stone that is the mirror of the other black stone, from which the magnetizing force of Asia uh, extends. Does Genghis resonate with Chintamani? Is it a, a binary device? It is the uh, program and he is the, uh, the ex ex execute. Uh, we, we don't know. We don't have these information because Genghis Khan stops. The program stops running. Tamerlane tries to boot it up. We've talked about Tamerlane. Tamerlane, his algorithm's a little wonky. Go after Europe? Uh, no, don't go after Europe. Go after the Muslims? Uh, no, go, go after China. He basically dies of indecision while trying to figure out what to invade. There's a key component missing from Tamerlane. Baybars, it's so attenuated now, all he does is he conquers India, the Mughals immediately begin to disintegrate. Aurangazab basically 
builds up the empire that is disintegrating as he is building it. Something is fundamentally flawed. The system has been has suffered from copy drift. By the time you get to Baron Ungarn von Sternberg, who believes that he has been called by uh, the wrathful Buddha to become the reincarnation, or the, um, uh, what shall I say, the upgrade of Genghis Khan, the second program, we uh, detect a new Genghis Khan, would you like to uh, download it? It's, it's completely the, the terms of service are a bitch, by the yeah, way. Yeah, by the way, yeah. <laughs> Do not just click on that. Um, it, it, is, it is so broken that the only thing he knows is, de is the destruction of monasteries and the slaughter of imagined enemies. The system is, is, is broken down, the code is fragmented, it's fractured, it's been torn apart into pieces. The alien artifact that is Genghis Khan is now, one hesitates to say rod of seven parts, but it is broken apart. It is in uh, the, the genetic uh, heritage of the descendants of Tamerlane. It is possibly in the arrangement of the pyramid of skulls. Maybe that was done by, by a series of, of, of geometric metrics. The, the few depictions of Genghis Khan. It is interesting that the only history of Genghis Khan that we have is called the secret history of the Mongols. There is no unsecret history of the Mongols. They didn't write an unsecret history. The only history they wrote is called the secret history of the Mongols. That's an interesting argument that says that, by definition, Genghis Khan is operating on an esoteric level, not an exoteric level. Uh, the Central Asian fascination of people like Blavatsky, people like um, uh, Vice President Henry Wallace, that's too well known to go into here. But I think that you can definitely trace the attempt to recreate the Genghis Khan protocol, the Genghis Khan download, literally download, uh, th throughout this whole, th this whole process. Uh, the notion that the last man who knew it was Lenin's cryptographer, Glenn, Gleb Boki. And again, the notion that someone who's a cryptographer is drawn to the mysteries of Central Asia, a little significant, a little, a little telling. I think that we can say, however, without fear of contradiction, that Genghis Khan was an alien cyborg mimetic construct created by the Tengri entity. And I don't want to get into speculations about who, what, or where oh, the Tengri I, I, I entity is. I can tell is. you. I actually know you, this. You know that? All right. Um, actually, Genghis Khan, is clear from what you've said, is uh, an alien kid playing Minecraft. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And this is a playing piece. Uh -huh. The kid was really good at it for a while. And then Trelane's mom told him to come in. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and then, you know, later he tried to pick up the game a while, but, you know, he was rusty and, and bored with it. And, and bored with it. Right. Okay. So there we go. There we go. Nerd alien, trope. Alien Minecraft. Double nerd trope, in yes. fact. Are you a fan of investigative role-playing, weird horror, or Lovecraftian stories? If not, you are listening to this podcast by some peculiar accident. But if so, head on over to Kickstarter now to check out Weird Detective, the tabletop role-playing game from Covetous Poet Publishing. Weird Detective is a rules-easy system with in-depth character creation. Play detective solving strange and horrible crimes caused by supernatural forces. The core book includes the game mechanics, character creation, rules for mythos insanity, and traumatic stress. Also included a full background section covering the modern, weird horror-based setting. Plus, it's available for only $5. The Kickstarter also features three epic adventures featuring murderous witches, undead fiends, and a journey to the fabled Plateau of Lang. Along with four upcoming system expansion packs that add optional 
in-depth rules. And new background material for ancient civilizations, the living dead, alien creatures, and terrifying deities. All available in cost-saving PDF package deals. Weird Detective is available on Kickstarter through January 2nd, so check it out to see more. So what we're going to do now is open it up to questions. We have a, a charming microphone holder who will be the one who comes to you when you put your hand up. So she'll be deciding uh, who asks a question, therefore obviating our requirement to restate the question, which we always forget to do. So uh, first question is... Uh, what's the panel's opinion on who would win in an international cage match between Boris Johnson and Rob Ford? Well, I mean, Rob Ford's got cancer now. Uh, so Rob Ford's tumor would spring out of him and <laughs> strangle Boris Johnson. I'm sorry, guys. Boris is nothing compared to Rob Ford because Rob Ford has always succeeded with the baffling power of unintelligence, and he baffles otherwise intelligent people. And the one thing you cannot say about Boris is he's, he's a smart man, so yeah. he would be completely lost in any interaction and, and with also, Rob Ford. Uh, the, his hair flaps down over one eye, so he doesn't have depth perception in the fight. <laughs> and that's going to be a problem. That, that's why Veronica Lake had to give up her uh, MMF career. Uh, next question. Proper advice uh, I'm looking for here. Uh, I've got an improvised campaign where my players have just discovered that we're being invaded. Aren't we always being invaded by body snatchers? It's just after the First World War. They're just setting up an intelligence agency to fight the conspiracy. What are your, what's your advice on the early days of intelligence agencies? Who are we trying to advise, you or them? Uh, them in the setting up, or me in running the game, either way. Okay. Well, so usually the first guy who sets up an intelligence agency is kind of a crazy cowboy kind of a dude. So that's your typical player character, right? As a, the, the whole institutional process later is the next generation of spies trying to impose some sort of governmental order and good process on the crazy stuff that the first guy did. So uh, I would say, you know, don't get too hung up on the fact that it's an agency. Focus on the, you know, you guys are spies trying to survive. And, you know, the history of who they, you know, gets brought in to deal with spies, there's some pretty crazy characters in there. So uh, I would say dial up the irresponsible player character cowboyness. Uh, I, I think that it, uh, much depends on what, what country are they in? Where are they setting their... UK. UK, all right. Um, well, you are, are blessed by never actually having a spy agency full of normal people. So at any era, uh, right after the, uh, the First World War, you've still got Gertrude Bell out there in uh, Iraq uh, engaging in, in shenanigans. Uh, my own absolute uh, favorite guy, oh, what's his name? Uh, Everard, uh, what's his name? The dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah him. Everard Fielding. Uh, his entire resume looks like a, a spy resume. Um, he's Royal Navy, serves in Egypt, then he stops being in the Royal Navy, then he plants rubber in Malaya, then he goes back, he's in Egypt again during World War I, back, you know, to RN, then he, uh, he's in a whole series of sort of secondary postings and businesses. None of it makes any sense as a career, unless, of course, he's a spy. He is also uh, the recording secretary of the Society for Psychical Research. And, of course... Well, you need that to find body he's, he's great friends with Gertrude Bell. If you look at the, um, what, what they called the... Uh, 
Um, the intrusives, which was the British spy agency working out of Cairo during World War I, that's where uh, Lawrence of Arabia reported to, that's where Gertrude Bell got her training, uh, Everett Fielding is with that, I think um, uh, uh, Lord Carnarvon's uh, cousin, or, or whatever he was, uh, Audley, um, uh, or Aubrey rather, who was twice offered the throne of Albania, uh, was <laughs> basically blind in both eyes and made a habit of climbing around on the roofs at Oxford. Um, I think you've got something going on there uh, with, with, the, with the intrusives, uh, who are also, I, I recently learned, um, the, the, the Cairo intelligence unit was sent to Ireland in 1920 and triggered uh, the Bloody Sunday in 1920 uh, by uh, getting all killed by Michael Collins. So you've got definitely some possibilities. I would, not, uh, I, I would not leave Ireland out of it, certainly because that's one of the big things that the British intelligence is doing after the war. And again, the, there is no bottom to that particular well. I would look at the, the uh, what's his name, Menzies, the guy who's, um, who uh, Fleming modeled M after, uh, kept a, a baboon. He had a menagerie and was buddies with Aleister Crowley. There is, they're all nuts. Uh, and, and you got lots of guys in, in British intelligence who will either be body snatchers or when told there are invisible body snatchers among us will say, and? <laughs> well, are, are you fighting them too? Yeah. Well, presumably the name of the group was the counter intrusives. Right, But yeah. that got dropped just because it was too much to say. Mm -hmm. uh, next question. Uh, with regard to the nerd trophy question, I feel like I should point out that the tomb of Genghis Khan is famously lost. Right. Like, uh, to cite everyone who went to it was killed and then the site was trampled over by a herd of horses and then they planted trees on top of it so that no one would know where it was. Um, but obviously the players will eventually find it. What defenses <laughs> does the tomb of Genghis Khan implode? Because clearly the Mongols were for some reason concerned that no one else get their hands on the Khan download. So how do you keep it out of the hands of inquisitive player characters? Well, the, um, the interesting thing about that particular uh, security system is that it had been pioneered by Adel the Hun. Same deal with him. His, his tomb was famously lost, and there was a guy who was a dowser, who was a professional dowser in Nazi Germany, who uh, he'd had so much success finding gold mines that he said, that's no longer a challenge. I'm going to go find the lost tomb of Adel the Hun. And... Uh, he, for some reason, got clapped into a concentration camp and never heard from again. But uh, I think that you can start by assuming that the Adela program and the Genghis program have a lot in common. And if there is going to be a set of responses, I think the responses are going to have to be a combination of mimetic, uh, possibly just straight mimetic terror, possibly mimetic rotation of your, of your temporal senses out of place. And also, of course, uh, animated skeletons. I mean, right. that's just... <laughs> well, You're an archaeologist. I can't believe I had to tell you that. Well, there's, I, I would say there's all kinds of classic death traps. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is that it's not to keep people out. It's to test people. And so far, everybody's failed. But the player characters, of course, are the ones who pass all of the tests and get to open the tomb. And of course, what that happens is the person who opens a tomb has the program loaded in them, and they are now Genghis 3.0, and the rest of the players uh, have to then cope with the consequences of having one of their number now programmed as uh, Genghis. And depending on your group of players, you may have a player who would be, uh, is willing to you know, turn on a dime and be the new world-conquering Genghis, or uh, you could then uh, have that become a, an NPC and then the, the player take a new character who's 
the one who hasn't passed the test and has to enter this circle in order to get uh, close enough to Genghis to either uh, uh, kill his consciousness and somehow uh, recover his uh, uh, brother or father or uh, blood brother or whoever it is. Uh, the notion of your player characters becoming the fabulous five to Genghis Khan is actually kind of cool. <laughs> I don't think that I would, I, I think Robin's right. I don't think you prevent them. I think you, you, you sort of do a reverse uh, shadow where you're playing Shawan Khan and his anti-fabulous five. And there's a weird mind-controlling Aryan Superman who's hunting you relentlessly. Uh, oh no, it's so Batman you're really yeah, mad at. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> You um, put him in a hole for a number of years. Yeah, right, quite yeah. quickly. Well, there's a, there, there's any number of people who turn out to be mad at Central Asian masterminds. If you, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as though there's some sort of uh, inbred warning system. <laughs> uh, Iron Man will also get after yeah. you, right? Okay. There's, there's all these antibodies. Yes, uh, that will start idea. coming after your players. Man, that's that's a couple of good ideas right there. Anyway, <laughs> next. Ken, this so. You attribute your trick memory to your ability to take a neurotrope and just ramble on it. I don't attribute that. I attribute it to genetics. <laughs> <laughs> Which I am, and by the way, I am destroying this, this trick memory. This beautiful uh, mind is, is, I'm deliberately killing it. So in terms of us normal people, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the jury may be out on that. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming we have the sources of um, Encyclopedias, etc., um, and going through the same verses you would go through only slower. What is that person's? Well, I mean, if I could describe it, it wouldn't be magic. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think really the process is read enough that you recognize patterns, right? If you've read, uh, and I, the example that I always give is King Arthur, but Star Wars also works. Whichever you're, you're familiar with, you'll start seeing it come up. So a love triangle is always King Arthur. A father and son battling over the throne is always Star Wars. Any father and son battling over the throne can be turned into Star Wars. You know, Lion in Winter is Star Wars, right? Uh, that's not, you recognize those two patterns and then you find the places that those two patterns touch and that's where you set the game or the story or the rambling monologue during a podcast, whatever it is. And it's, uh, it, it's just about doing enough reading that you recognize enough patterns that you've always got a go-to that you can pull, and then the ability to recognize what's awesome versus what's not particularly awesome. So the fact, uh, like James says, that uh, Genghis Khan's tomb was deliberately hidden in a bunch of different fairy tale style ways, that's more awesome than uh, the fact that he uh, meets a Chinese guy and the Chinese guy explains to him how taxes work. That's less awesome. So, um, I mean, unless you really want to have Chinese taxation as the core of your story, then go nuts. But uh, the, the, the way to do it, I, I've always said, is you take the thickest possible book about the topic that you want to nerd trope or whatever, you look through the index until you see something that catches your fancy. You know, I didn't know that Cotton Mather has anything to do with this guy. Turn to that page in the index, well, there you go. Cotton Mather wrote him a letter about toad sexing or something. And it's like, well, that's weird. That Cotton, so that can't be what he was really writing about. He was writing about witches. Now, how do I put witches in this guy? And you're off, right? That's all it is. And it's just looking through that index and knowing patterns that you want to match. That's, that's really all it is. But, you know, hopefully it's something that I can do well enough to, to stay ahead of the game <laughs> until my wife kills me. 
Uh, and then after his uh, wife kills him, you have to get through several layers of trash <laughs> to become the next king. That's right. Uh, next question. Which is the most expendable archetype in any adventuring team? That's a hurtful way to put it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. In a game designed by crap designers, there's an expendable archetype. But uh, I mean, uh, well, okay, the bard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the one you most want to expend. I don't know if that's technically the most expendable. I think the most expendable is, the go is whatever you've got a lot of. So in Ars Magica, the expendable archetype is the wizard, because you're, 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 you're full up. You've got a million frickin' wizards. In, you know, bog standard uh, F20, it's probably a fighter of some sort, because everyone's got a sword and a pretty decent to hit of some sort. In Call of Cthulhu, it might be the academic, the professor, that they're the expendable one because there's five guys with tenure and it's looking like a freaking traveling seminar, not a monster hunting expedition. <laughs> so the, the expendable is, is always the one that you've got a lot of, but in, in, my, you know, in my experience, players will walk into the buzzsaw regardless of what they're playing and the, exp the act of expendability is not stopping the buzzsaw from spinning. And right. you just do that based on, on uh, pacing and how you want the game to feel. And the other question is expendable to, t to who, right? We've been talking about who's expendable to the rest of the party, but to the GM, it's the one who doesn't have an interesting hook that they've built into the storyline and is resistant to getting involved and making themselves vulnerable and uh, putting themselves out there because as GM, uh, the character who most inconveniences your plan by dying is the least expendable. It's like, oh, I can't let you know John die because he's the one who's put this whole plot in motion, and it's his quest to find his mom and his rivalry with his mentor that drives the whole plot. Um, oh, but Steve's character, he avoids contact with other people and doesn't ever say much. And uh, he's a, hmm. he's he's playing a loner. Yeah, it's doesn't a, he doesn't tell anyone his plans. Is there a way this death rate can ricochet and miss John? And, <laughs> Steve. Next question. Hello. Uh, first, uh, I'm going to put a doctor to this nurture by saying that Genghis Khan has been happening with more than a million women. So that might come up with something. But now I'll ask uh, uh, one of my biggest problems. Uh, I'm from Turkey, so it's kind of a Middle East, uh, Eastern European. And most of my friends, when I, we uh, usually play the Andes and all those. Uh, regular stuff, but when I tried to play Dresden Files, which comes with building your own city, I had trouble because uh, my peers... Is Istanbul is boring? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I heard it. <laughs> and the problem is that they either can't take that seriously or they find it alienated because what common, they don't want to be the common Turkish police officers or common common people in their country and that's they find them anything for some reason I I can't understand I, and I try to use the medieval times as well but it was a golden age but they find it boring. I mean, in any game, whether it's Dresden Files or not, if the players find the, the stock answer boring, you change that up. And so you say to your players, all right, are you in Istanbul or Ankara or, or where, whereabouts? Istanbul. Istanbul. All right, so you're in literally one of the most exciting, interesting, fascinating places ever to exist on the globe. 
and your players are like, Istanbul, Schmistenbul. So whatever they find exotic and fun and thrilling, whether it's London or Chicago or Toronto or um, uh, Des Moines, Iowa or whatever, that's where you set the game because getting the players juiced up is half the battle. Actually, it's about 80% of the battle, but it's, it's, the it's a big part of the first bar. So if you're play I mean, and I don't know your players, whatever they, if they, if they watch a, a common, you know, a TV show that's, that's set somewhere, they have an interest in, you know, martial arts film, maybe they think Seoul Korea is fascinating, because it is, and, and so we want to play in Seoul Korea, great, play in Seoul Korea. Just because you have the great privilege and fortune of living in Istanbul doesn't mean that, you know, you have to, you know, marinate yourselves in it. No, I mean, you, you can't reason someone into something they, they, they didn't, or out of something they didn't reason themselves into. I mean, it's, it's an irrational prejudice, and if you can't fight it, then don't bother fighting it. Play somewhere else. And it, it's a shame to, to miss out on Istanbul. I mean, I feel you, man. Um, uh, but, you know, there's, there, there's really nothing you can do to, to bully players into realizing that they live in a freaking, you know, role-playing game setting. <laughs> uh, next. Uh, let's say the Gibby's come, that the you know, players find, um, they open traps and, uh, of, um, and they manage to download, you know, download um, in, let's say, two months from now. What, what would you say is going to make the most interesting method of global conquest? Robin? Uh, well, I think uh, Genghis Khan's MO is just to sort of look at uh, the way things exist and find how to break them and then put them back together again. So he's going to start looking for all of the failed states and uh, trying to find an advantage in each of them. So I would uh, get your headlines and see you know, what parts of the world are generating the most anxiety and then say, well, how would Genghis Khan use the Ebola epidemic, for example? Or how would he somehow have a hand in the rise of police militarization in the developed world, or in America particularly? And uh, you know, what's the next story after that? Well, uh, uh, what about uh, human trafficking? How could he take advantage of the way that uh, human trafficking works and, and turn it to his advantage and create a, a series of agents? So that would give you a sort of a theme for each different adventure that the player characters, who presumably in this, are working against him rather than trying to conquer uh, the world. Or you could do it the other way around, right? Is that you could have. Genghis Khan is actually a pretty benevolent dictator unless you get in his way. So that, you know, maybe he's like Doc Savage, right? Where he could just, you know, he might uh, even rehabilitate people rather than, than killing them. Or after a while, he's, you know, uh, killing people is counterman. So you ha could have a campaign where you're trying to install a benevolent controlling power on the world and you and, the, uh, and Genghis are doing that. But more likely, the player characters are going to be trying to fight him. And so you create sort of a world-spanning campaign where this old image of uh, Genghis Khan is then taken into the 21st century and you find a way to, uh, you know, that tension between the old and the new is what drives the theme of the campaign. And a lot of it's going to depend on if you're doing sort of a shadow pulpy campaign where Genghis Khan is rising in the shadows in a million different countries, uh, like Shawan Khan or like uh, Fu Manchu, or whether he's actually just, you know, He's taken over all the stands. He's taken over Iran. He's taken over Afghanistan, Pakistan. And he's just on the march. He's invading stuff. And if your answer is, how does Genghis Khan beat NATO, 
there are a lot of interesting uh, stuff coming out of war games. If you look at the records of war games that are played, especially the Tiger team or the B team, the, the Red team in American military colleges, they're, all, they're famous for screwing with American force structure and doctrine because that's what they were taught at West Point. And the guys whose job it is to beat the guy who gets to play America has to really think outside the box. And there's examples, uh, you, we've all heard the classic, uh, the Japanese fought uh, a war game of Midway and when uh, the, Ameri the American players sank three carriers, they said, all right, that's, that war game is over. We're starting it over again because obviously it's broken. We got an edge case. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, the exact same thing has happened in America when they war gamed wars against Iran. The Iran player, like, you know, just paralyzes the fleet in the Gulf, uses like tiny speedboats and, and silkworm missiles and all the sort of second tier stuff that Iran has to just really screw with American force posture. So if you, if you go onto your, your military uh, websites, your, uh, the, there's the guy called the War Nerd, I think, or the War Geek, something like that. Uh, I think he's behind a paywall now, which is a shame, but if you can find his stuff, he tends to sort of think, you know, a little counterintuitively moves towards that. There's links all over the place if you start looking at Amer uh, American war games, uh, military war games, and you start, and you say, Genghis Khan does what the guys who the Pentagon doesn't want to promote do, and even if in the real world that might not work, certainly in the context of a game, you know, and because we're not going to push a nuclear button over Genghis Khan. We're just not. It's not going to happen. I mean, you, you, you know, given the response in the, in the civilized world, in the Western world, to conventional wars overseas, over, any, uh, over even something involving attacks on our soil, the fact that Genghis Khan is invading another batch of foreigners and making a pyramid of skulls is like, well, there you go, whatever. You know, and uh, the pyramid of skulls, that'll happen. Well, and, it's, and it's on CNN or right, whatever. Probably the first thing Genghis Khan does is he makes himself a CIA asset. Yeah. He says, I'm gonna, you, you know your problems in Central Asia? Yeah. I can take care of those for you I in an age of diminishing interest in foreign adventures. And then, you know, and we all know that it's never been the case that America has uh, armed and trained of foreign uh, forces who then turn against them. Never happened. Never no. got it. Uh, there's a for, there's a line on the form. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's in the terms of use. Yeah, right. Yeah, but you also don't want to click on. It. No, but you've already clicked on it. That's yeah. the best part. Um, next. So we just finished two very successful Kickstarters. Uh, congratulations on those. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Do you have any projects you can talk about in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, right, right now I'm, I've, I've finished the Kickstarter part of the Kickstarter, but not the writing the Kickstarter part of the Kickstarter. We've got 280 pages done on the director's handbook for Dracula Dossier. Uh, Gar and I have gotten much of Dracula unredacted, unredacted, but we're not done with that or with the annotations. And then someone added a bunch of stretch goals, so we have to write or cause to be wrote those. And uh, things like the Edom Field Manual, the Thrill of Dracula. Dracula is going to be eating a lot of my free time for the next few months. Uh, I've also got Ken writes about stuff, which is ongoing. So I'm doing rat things when I get home, and then Goetia next, and I don't remember what's next after that. But more stuff on the Ken writes about stuff uh, pipeline. Uh, that's I mean Dracula is really still in my in my front uh, uh, mirror as well. Uh, at some point we'll have a Pelgrain meeting to decide what we're doing after that, but I'm, I'm not sure Simon knows much, less me. Uh, yeah, we don't know yet. Um, so in the pipeline, I have World Breaker, uh, which is a world-spanning campaign for the Ezoterrorists. 
Um, there's a lot of discussion in the source material for the esoterists about their ambitions to break the membrane and how their structure works and how they uh, you know, normally don't work together but under certain circumstances might. Uh, but these scenarios, that tends to be a sort of a lighter flavor in more of a typical uh, horror scenario. So we've done a lot of esoteric stuff that's on the horror side of things with just a light dusting of the Tom Clancy side. This is now the world-spanning campaign in which the esoterists have a plan to rip open the membrane and you have to go all around the world uh, to stop it, including in, into the heart of the Ebola epidemic. Um, and so that's uh, written and it's ready to go into playtesting. So if anybody uh, likes the esoterists uh, and wants to playtest that, that would be great. Um, and uh, my next big project coming up, I can't say much about, uh, except that it's called Six Ages and it's the follow-up to the King of Dragon Pass computer game slash app, uh, which uh, was so ahead of its time that it didn't did virtually nothing as a computer game when it first came out, and it's now done incredibly well as a phone and iPad app. And so that's set in the world of Glorantha, and it's going to have a similar uh, structure. And other than that, uh, if I knew anything, I wouldn't be allowed to say it, but it's so early that I don't really know much of what we're doing except what I just said. Uh, and then after that, uh, whatever Simon says he wants next at the Pelgrane meeting. Next question. If you could design a role-playing game for any popular television show or film franchise, what would it be? Uh, let's see, I already got to do The Dying Earth, which was my favorite. Then I got to do my favorite uh, gaming setting when I did Hero Wars, so uh, I don't know. Doctor Who's already taken. Um, the thing, that, the only one that I actually still want to do, that I would do if someone came up and offered me a normal amount of money. I mean, obviously, if you offer me a crazy amount of money, I'll do whatever you want. Um, but uh, for a normal amount of money, for a normal game design amount of money, the only licensed property that I care enough about to want to do is Quatermass. Um, if the Beep is out there, or Nigel Neal's Arizona Signs, and they want to get me to do a Quatermass game, I would love to do that. That is not popular in your sense of the question. Um, it would have been fun to do the, uh, we danced around Fox when we were doing the Star Trek game. We danced around Fox a couple of times to do the X-Files game. Um, and that would have been a lot of fun before the X-Files ended. Now it's, it's, it's not just dead, it's, it's, it's a nostalgia piece. It would be a, a, a trippy, hey kids, remember the 90s? Remember flannel type uh, game? Which would take remember away Remember when the investigators didn't have cell phones? Yes. <laughs> remember when the government spying on us was a hilarious possibility? Um, and, and so the, and, and so the, the, the trouble with the X-Files, and it's something that Supernatural has sort of done also, is the way that it is a, um, uh, it's, it's like a pilgrimage through the dark heart of the American uh, mythological world, right? That it's, that it's very much an American um, totentons or, or a death trip. Through, through, through the mythology of, of, of postmodern America. And I like that aspect of it. I think that would have been really strong and a good way to, 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 to set up the game and, and play that. But the X-Files stopped being about that uh, after, we did, after we wind up not doing it the, the second time. And now, like I said, it, it's so dated that it would be very difficult to, to do a, a good, to do something that did justice to the X-Files while still being any fun at all to design. One thing, I, I don't know, The Wire? Uh, I've, actually, speaking of King of Dragon Pass, I would still love someday to be involved in something that uses that sort of problem-solving uh, format uh, in which you're managing resources and then crises come up in the scenes and you figure out what to do and there are people advising you. I'd still uh, love to do 100 years in the history of the American Mafia 
as a King of Dragon Pass style uh, game. And so you uh, uh, start uh, pre-prohibition and uh, you know you go through uh, the uh, summit being, uh, taking place and then the first informers and the, you have the Kennedy assassination and what involved, what, you know, how that impinges on the mob and then the influx of other uh, groups and RICO and uh, up to the present day. But that's not exactly an entertainment property. So, like the Wire role-playing game would be as close as you can get to that, I guess. Or maybe the Atlantic City role-playing game. Oh, the Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Except again, yeah. like X Files, yeah. it right. bored itself to death. Yes. <laughs> Idiocy. Next. So, Robert, um, you did uh, the. Um, sometimes your grammar system is an outgrowth of Hamilton. So. What's an outgrowth of grammar system? What have you taken from grammar system into what you're going to do in the future? Um, the most recent use I made of drama system ideas is in Blowing Up the Movies, which is a companion book to the Feng Shui 2 Kickstarter. And that's a series of essays about uh, looking at classic action movies, particularly classic Asian action movies, and then looking to see what is in them that we can actually turn into actionable advice or techniques to use in our games. So in that sense, it's a little, it's my follow-up to Hamlet's hit points, but it's more directly actionable because Hamlet's hit points is more about, here's how story beats work, internalize this, is basically how that works. And this is more like, well, what can you learn from the matrix? What does the matrix do really well? And how can you do similar things in gaming? And, uh, and I didn't have answers to what angle I would have on each film until I watched the films. And some of them, even as I was watching, I was like, what am I gonna, how am I gonna write about hot fuzz uh, in a way that is about, other than just it's a fun movie, but how, how does that become a, a technology that you can implement in your games? And the answer is, well, look at the structure of setups and, and payoffs. Or, you know, what is it about the Matrix that is uh, interesting that we can steal? Well, it's, uh, in that case, it's about how skillfully they deploy the exposition. Because there's a ton of world-building information in that first film, but it's never uh, boring or too much to take because they present it so effectively. Uh, for example, by having the character be in jeopardy and having him have to gather the information in order to survive and understand what's going on. Uh, well, there's a couple of films that turn out to uh, require you to take bits and pieces of drama system and import them into feng shui if you want to be able to replicate that feeling. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the drama system feng shui uh, hybrid because if you look at that film, uh, every fight <coughs> is basically a drama system dramatic scene with a uh, petitioner and a grantor, except instead of talking it out, they fight it out. Um, and so that essay talks about how you would run a feng shui fight and decide at the end, based on who won, who, whether the grantor was rebuffed or had their petition granted and that drama tokens exchanged that way. Um, also, uh, the essay on Hero is all about how you can make uh, your games more dramatically compelling by stealing the uh, character generation of drama system in which you create relationships to each other rather than just you know, six separate melodramatic hooks, everybody is already interrelated. Uh, so that's an example of drama system filtering through into, into something else and then advising people to use it for uh, whatever, not just for drama system. So I think we have time for uh, probably one more question, maybe two. 
Going back to media properties, didn't I hear that Twin Peaks is being um, remade? You did hear that. Re, re, not even uh, remade. Uh, uh, continued. Continued. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a line in, in one of the last episodes where they say, I'll see you in 25 years, Agent mm -hmm. Cooper, or something like that. And guess what? Yeah. <laughs> David yeah. Lynch was da planning da to da do David that. David Lynch is still here, and he still has a mortgage to pay. And, so. you know, <laughs> and uh, Portlandia doesn't keep Colin McLaughlin uh, occupied year-round. So. Right. Um, I mean, making a game out of Twin Peaks would be... It would be a challenge because everything that works about Twin Peaks is the sort of thing that is almost impossible to give advice about in gaming, except watch Twin Peaks. Yeah, and I, mean, I actually internalize in that. the middle of a page XS column about how to do that. Yeah. Uh, because it falls into the category of the existential mystery. Uh, Gumshoe famously deals with uh, typical mysteries where you're investigating in order to solve a mystery to answer a question, and once you answer the question, you've wrapped up the case and you move on to the next one. Well, certain things that deconstruct the mystery genre, like Twin Peaks, but even more so other Lynch films like Inland Empire and uh, Mulholland Drive, or Godard's uh, Alphaville. Alphaville was or, the one I was thinking yeah, of, yeah. Um, or even like... Uh, I Heart Huckabees. Yeah. Um, these are existential mysteries where uh, <clears throat> there is no real answer to the question, and each, but the scenes nonetheless lead into each other in the way that a, uh, a gumshoe mystery does, where you pick up this clue and it leads you to this other place. There's just, you never acquire Closure. Context or closure, <laughs> all you do is discover that the mystery is deeper and deeper and deeper until you are destroyed. So how you would achieve buy-in for a group that actually wants to have their mystery experience deconstructed is the number one question. But once, if you have a, people, a group of people who want to do that, and they might, I think that's something that people might enjoy more in like a game by text thing where you're creating a group fiction together because uh, you would do it over little bits and pieces over time and the despair factor of knowing that the mystery is only going to get more mysterious as you go along instead of less. Uh, so anyway, eventually there'll be a page text column on, on that. Uh, one more question, I think. My uh, next campaign is a mashup of NYPD Blue in Sigil. And, uh, I can think of a few different departments, such as vice and narcotics, but I'm, uh, I'd like to know what you might think of uh, would be in such a police department based in, in Sigil. What are they kind of departments would there be? Right, so Sigil is the Plainscape city yeah. of sort of the noirish D&D &D, mm -hmm. uh, weirdo city. And well, the question is what, what crimes are there in a world where D&D uh, &D magic exists? Uh, so, uh, and in Sigil, there are all of these uh, powers who are uh, authorities in their own areas, and uh, people in power do not want magic to be available except to them. So you might, uh, you know, a case one week, uh, you may not be allowed to mind read people of a certain social class or above. So someone's, you know, it's perfectly fine to mind read the homeless to see what they're up to or the criminal class, but you can't mind read the people who really own it and, and run society. So you, uh, as uh, cops, you may have a, uh, a mind-reading case to investigate one week. Uh, also, uh, telling the future, uh, like just as, as in you know, real ancient cultures, wearing purple was only allowed to the kings. Well, having a prophet who can actually see the future again, that's something only the status quo allows. So if you're an unlicensed seer, uh, they come to your door and goes, 
we've noticed that you can predict the future and you have this whole religious agenda that you're promoting. We're not so interested in that part of it, but we are going to hire you now to uh, see the future for us. And if you say no, we'll send the cops after you. So you might be the next one you're uh, cracking down on an unlicensed seer. Or just in a world where gods grant magic, just starting a new religion could be illegal because uh, it's a zoning violation. It's a zoning violation, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think also in, in Sigil you have to ask, what's the actual currency, right? Is, it, because it's where all the various planes interact and intercept. Each plane has got its own, uh, each one is its own little super king in its own little area, but in Sigil, they have to measure their selves somehow. And you might say it's by the number of souls they control in the prime material, or it might be something. But whatever the actual currency is, counterfeiting that, pretending you have more of it than you do, uh, smuggling it in from another place, like someone's opened up a channel to a different um, uh, prime material, to the you know forgotten realms instead of Greyhawk, and now it's like, well, do we have to get a double? Do, does this mean we have to have two guys, of, two sets of angels, and two sets of Davis, and two? No, we can't have that. That's too many guys. We have to shut this off. But that's such a sweet channel to to pure idiot souls that don't know any better. Maybe it's better to nationalize that, and so you have. I think with, with, with someone like Sigil, you want to tell more stories about factional uh, uh, corruption and then, like, like Robin was suggesting, the things that upset those in power become crimes whether they're crimes or not. I think you know, having more souls than you're allotted or, or counterfeit souls or flooding the, the black market, you know, things like that. I mean, talk about commerce, talk about the intersection of commerce and power. That's where your, that's where your real uh, uh, story juice is going to come down to as opposed to just you know, oh, who could have killed the Demogorgon? I guess someone who doesn't like Demogorgon, that's everybody. You know, um, you know uh, the homicides are gonna be fun, but you can over-rely on them, so I would, I would spread those way out and then make a lot of the crimes just be sort of straightforward political crimes that even deciding a crime happened as a political act, and maybe you're, the pressure is back off it and pretend that that didn't happen, you know? Maybe there was, all right, so there's 50 less Modrons than there were. No one cares, they'll make more, it's all right. And uh, you're like, no, I think that the guy collecting Modron parts is up to something. This is a bigger deal, but no one wants to know. So I would, I would do a lot of that, that sort right. of contrast. And, and Sigil, the main crime is uh, you're probably mostly uh, magical INS agents. You're, it's, it's immigration, yeah. right? It's, uh, if, the demon, if there are a bunch of demons who have escaped and are now living in Angel Town, uh, the angels don't want them there but they don't want to fight a bunch of demons on their own home turf, it's unseemly. So they hire you to go and uh, hunt the demons and take them back home. And then at the end, you know, the moral dilemma is, but we want to be angels too. We hate being evil, we're good. We've been, uh, you know, worshiping uh, the, the uh, uh, you know the, the elven goddess of, of, of virtue, and uh, yeah. we want to stay. And, and we and we have a detect evil certificate that says we're not evil from the elven yeah. goddess of virtue. D detect us all you want, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> the the live episodes always have an f bomb in. Them. Yeah, they do. It's, it's important to keep it real. Yes. To keep our street cred. Uh, now, if I recall correctly, there isn't another seminar after this. Is that correct? So. Do you want to squeeze in one, let's, let's, one or two? Yeah, yeah. If, if people got an, another uh, good one or two. Ian has one. I, Ian. I'm a big fan of kind of high concept SF, but I always find it's really hard to work it as an RPG. You know, if I try to run an SF game, it tends to devolve into cyberpunk and kick in the door, all sort of stuff, which you could almost play in a modern day sort of way. So I tried out a uh, drama system in Ian and Max's setting this summer and left the high concept stuff for the players to kind of improvise. So it's kind of 
there is some great mystery under this planet, it's clearly an alien artifact. Let players kind of work out what it is and have some input into that. Any tips for doing that well? Because I really enjoyed doing it, but I'm not, you know, it was occasionally, occasionally slightly clunky in parts. So. Uh, at the risk of plugging my own rule set, um, most science fiction that is not adventure oriented, that's not about kicking doors in, is about uh, sort of human response to imagined futures. It's not action adventure. And drama system, the system that is in the Hillfolk game, works really well for that kind of thinky science fiction that is not just uh, uh, action adventure with uh, laser guns and so I would look into that because you can do all, then people are interacting with the world building and the premise and each other and their relationships to power and not just trying to solve physical problems of beating people up. So that, that was drama system? Yes. Yeah. I, I was using that, just any yeah. tips for, for doing that in drama system? So the, the problem that you're facing is it wasn't a problem as such, it was just a kind of, um, I suppose, giving the players that much power, um, they were a little bit freaked out by, oh gosh, do we really get to decide what the artifact is, and uh, drew back from it a little bit. Um, so give them more time to think. So tell them that this week we're going to answer the question of what the alien artifact is. So take a while to think, because the problem is, it's when you give people power, it's not just that they're taken aback, but that they're put on the spot and they don't have an idea right then. So warn them ahead of time what they'll have to work on. And you might want to uh, start each episode actually before you're actually playing out the game. And just like you have character generation to begin with, you say, well, let's all work on an idea and sort of workshop the idea of what the alien artifact is. And then everybody contributes a little bit to the idea without the pressure of having to come up with something on the spot that becomes part of the storyline. And then start the story and work all that stuff back in. Another thing that can work uh, with any sort of high concept uh, uh, thing like that is to impose some constraints and these can either be the GM imposed constraints where it's like there's no time travel it's not going to involve time travel whatever you do can't have time travel I'm sick of time travel or it can be the players come up with their own constraints and that can be the thing where and again drama system is a great system to do this because you say alright in this four weeks over the course of the four weeks we're going to figure out what this alien artifact is but episode one is just going to be finding out what it actually did to that to, 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 to your dad or to the scientists on the planet, you're there, you know, uh, and, and your reaction to that, to that grotesque scene, that weirdness, is going to inform what kind of, of effect it has in the real world. Okay, now, the next scene is going to be maybe ruling something out. Maybe was it another alien race or was it ancient humans or, or some giant thing? And that's going to be sort of just give, so answer, you know, what, who, you know, when, and why, and then why is the last one, but as you've built it, you're ruling out other possibilities. Don't, uh, especially with the, with the really big stuff, the really big thinky pieces, just presenting it all at once in a rush, either is gonna wind up with something that's, that feels forced, or worse yet, because they're, they're coming up with it on the spot, there's gonna be contradictions, and then if you try and stand on it, you're gonna break your ankle. Because it's gonna be, well now if this works, then that can't be true. And either you have to now say, all right, these are both true in the game world, you have to figure out What's the third force? What's the hidden reason that both of those are true? Or, more likely, players get frustrated because they can't make rational decisions. And so I, I think that it, it works if you give them constraints. It, it, uh, Microscope, the, the setting generating game, has a yeses and noes at the beginning, where you make a list of things that are always allowed and things that are never allowed. 
And even in an E&M Banks setting, you can say it's never allowed to have a fist fight. There's never going to be a fist fight in this world. We're, we're not fucking monkeys anymore. We're humans. We don't fist fight. So there's never going to be a fist fight scene. And then similarly, you say, and there's not going to be time travel because I hate math. I, I don't want to deal with the, 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 the punching holes through the paper and straws. I, I don't want to deal with that. So you can rule stuff out that you already don't want, and that still leaves the entire observed and unobserved physical universe. But you've, let, you've given them some constraints. It's like uh, writing poetry. You need you know, a sestina or a sonnet or whatever it is to really sort of put people into the structure. Uh, uh, you know, freestyling is hard, and uh, you know, if you don't have the ability to crumple stuff up and throw it on the floor, it, it looks like crap. Uh, well, I think uh, we did get a time signal, so it's time, Ken, for our outro. Oh. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Covetous Poet Publishing. York Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Get off at West Brompton on the district line to click the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter book, or Christmas sandwich by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.